Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, synthetic biology, and more, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is how tech companies reinvent themselves. Our guest is Matt Hughes, U.S. high-tech industry sales leader. In this conversation, we talk about high-tech industry partnerships, open ecosystems, consumer trends, the microverse, and predicting the role of technology in society. If you're new to the show or seek particular topics, check out the episode categories at futurize.org episodes. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors. If you want to sponsor the podcast, go to futurize.org store. We will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, please make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter on futurized.org. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Matt, welcome. Tron, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited about this. You're uh, you're an interesting uh, creature talking about a fascinating phenomenon that I think uh, a lot of people who've been watching the tech industry are wondering about this question. And there was even an article, Matt, and we'll we'll get to you in a second. But how Microsoft made the stunning transformation from evil empire to cool kid? It's it's the kind of it's the kind of transformation that you just got to be part of, right? It, yeah, you, you have to. It's, <laughs> it's been it's been a great run. It's. Um, I've been here for two and a half years, and I know we'll go back to, into a little bit of background, but um, I, I didn't see it coming. I just get, I've been lucky a lot. I work hard, but I've been lucky a lot. So uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Well, so y- you uh, you started out in psychology, right? You, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, Madison, and, and then got an MBA, and you've had a sales career uh, all around the tech industry, I must say, right? Cisco, Adobe, and, and now uh, at Microsoft. And... Um, I guess I'm curious because when you started psychology to, you know, move into the tech industry, at least when you did it, that's not the absolute obvious choice. Um, what was it about the tech industry that got you going? Well, to be even a little bit um, more br- brutally honest, um, I actually wanted to, to do what you're doing right now and go into journalism and advertising. And when I went to Madison, I got my basic credits out of the way. And they said, well, you know, there's like a three-year waiting list for the mass common journalism program. And so the truth of the matter is psychology was the fastest way to get out of uh, and graduate um, and get onto the, the real world. But um, through that process, I, I know now that it, it benefited me uh, back then. But one, once I graduated, Tron, um, I, I had a friend who was in the communication sector. And so they did a lot of distribution to the carriers, so cable companies, telco companies. So my first job was actually in tech. But it was putting, you know, helping sell fiber optics to the carriers who were competing with your traditional uh, telcos, uh, you know, during the, the late, uh, the early and mid 90s. And we had obviously had regulation. But, yeah, making the jump to kind of a hardware outside plant tech company to one that's doing, you know, zeros and ones and routers and moving to software and then, you know, digital marketing. It's been a great journey. Uh, I wouldn't change a bit of it. And it's, it's been super fun to be in tech and. Sometimes my wife calls me a masochist because I, I study it constantly, but it's uh, it's something that I think affects every every one of us. Well, that's fascinating, and we'll we'll get deeper into the tech industry and what's happening there, and particularly this transformational uh, journey that the company has been on. But first off, I, I was fascinated when we had our little pre-discussion. You know, you were a drummer uh, back back when, and then you've switched to to playing the bass, but, you know, at a pretty uh, high level, you're, you're not just uh, sort of a, you know, I don't know, like a Saturday musician or, or anything like that. That's that's fascinating to me. I, I also dabbled at a music uh, career, but then gave that up, uh, I think, before it even started. Uh, how has that journey been? 
It was good. It was, um, my parents were both very supportive. We grew up in Chicago, so we did have a basement. Um, so we could dampen, dampen the noise down a bit. But I remember, uh, getting into it when I was really young, my grandmother, um, she was a founding, uh, violinist for the Fresno Philharmonic. So all the influence came from my late grandmother and, you know, for birthdays and, and events, she would give me you know, drumsticks or drum heads. And so I always played. And I started my first band, I think, when I was about seven years old um, and then with some kids in the neighborhood. And then it, I made it my purpose to, like, meet the greatest drummer of every band and go to clinics. And, and so I got, you know, kind of good at an early age and played throughout college. Still have a uh, dabble around a little bit and play and sit in with uh, with bands locally. So I uh, I love doing it. So I guess it's the the other side of you know, the, the right brain, left brain, you could argue that they, they exist in both uh, hemispheres, but it's something that I like to do when I'm not, you know, husband, father, or working for Microsoft and our customers. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, you, you present it as if it's like two different things, but the way that you conduct yourself uh, at Microsoft as well, you're, you're, you're in thought leadership. It's not exactly this sort of straitjacket job where you're, you know, you're, you're not clocking in here. You, you're doing creative work there as well. Tell me a little bit more before we just get into this, the story of the story. But wh what is it that you actually do? So thanks uh, for asking. So again, been there for two and a half years, and I really spend my time serving Microsoft US as the industry leader. Um, so looking out at, at um, what, what trends are happening out there, um, to your earlier point, straight jackets, sometimes we feel like crazy and sometimes, you know, wearing a suit and jacket, but uh, I love the comparison. Uh, but it's really less about the product sales and, and Microsoft's largely been a product company and so are our peer and our, our healthy competition. But we really wanted to take a look at it from an industry perspective. So I had the experience being a sales leader, but then I had to be an industry thought leader. And I thought that was sort of a, you know, an easy uh, transition, but I needed to learn a lot, right? And mm -hmm. I talked to, uh, you know, people, you know, kind of how our paths crossed, Ron, is um, I listened a lot. I love networking. I love customers. I love partners. Um, and really what shapes the things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis is taking a, um, a global look, uh, a macro and a micro um, econ uh, ec economic viewpoint and analysis. And, and if you listen a lot or enough to enough people who kind of figure out where things are and where they're trending. That's not to say there's clairvoyance, but I think moving from a product solution area to an industry leader um, is, is the way to best align with our customers and our partners. And truth be told is our customers and our partners, they do want to talk about these things. They want to understand the broader context of, of what's happening in their environment, because what happens globally, as we've seen with the pandemic, um, it affects us in the U.S., and if you understand, you know, the challenges that they're facing, even the use cases that we talk about, which are, you know, eventually product driven, we get a better understanding of the world. And, and it reminds me of a conversation we had um, uh, previously, you know, that that book when I was younger, I always wanted to understand the future. And I read a book on demography um, and it's a long time ago, but it shaped my life and it, it gave me um, comfort and I think confidence understanding that a lot, not everything, but a lot of life is sort of predictable in terms of economic um, spin patterns, booms and busts, you know, what the next three, six, nine, 12 months look like after that. And I don't think it answers all the questions. Um, it doesn't mean that you can read people's minds, but you have the context, which maybe on some, you know, insecure level I was seeking to better understand where we've been, because uh, it wasn't a very good history uh, um, student, but where we've been and where we are and where we're going. And so that's really what I do. I, I, I try to bring that point of view, um, which doesn't always fit, you know, in that, like you were saying, that straight jacket. It's either, you know, size, you know, small, medium, large. And sometimes I sort of drift between customers, industries and lines of business. But I, I, I encourage them to think about how they're doing what they want to do, help them do that. If they're facing challenges, come up with some solutions to think about how do you lead with a solution? How do you sequence your products? How do you solve use, use cases? How do you organize your channel system? How do you create incentives and loyalty programs that make that inextricable? Um, so I, no day is the same, Tron, but uh, I thoroughly enjoy what I do. Matt, just a side thought. I, I, as you were talking about Boomernomics, this book from 1998 that you right. got so inspired by, I was- I didn't want to plug the author. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I was like, 
I don't even know if it's still in print. You know, <laughs> no, but you know what I was thinking was, uh, does it even happen anymore that people refer to a book as changing their life? I was almost sort of like mourning uh, our generational uh, issue here because we're, you know, we're, we'll be talking about the metaverse yeah. and other things. And I'm just wondering, are there any non-digital things that are, that are foundational anymore? So let me pose it to you. Yeah, I. it's a good question. I think that there's certain, you know, we can reference books or podcasts like this. Uh, I think you have an opportunity to change people's lives every day. And, you know, maybe somebody would say, well, wasn't it the book, you know, written by Jack Welch or John Chambers connecting the dots? And, and the truth be told, you know, John has had an impact on my life. But I think there's mm -hmm. just, we're all running around at different points in our lives seeking to understand something. So it could be, it could be a complete stranger. It doesn't have to be, you know, the CEO of a company. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's good to figure out how you can take care of yourself, your family, but also how you can inspire somebody to think differently if they're, if they're struggling. And, and in my case, um, I think it would have been fine, but it gave me a complete different way to look at, uh, you know, the economy of life and then bring in technology with that. Cause I read the book before I was in, uh, technology. Um, it was before my first job. So yeah, it, I don't know if that's a great answer to your question, but I think you can be inspired by anything. I think that the things that stick with me that I like to refer back to are uh, lessons in leadership that aren't time specific, right? It's, yeah. it's, you know, there's a lot of content on the metaverse. And I know we'll get into that in a minute, um, but I don't, it's structurally like, how do you think about leadership? How do you think mm -hmm. about treating people. And I think those basic tenets of leadership are, are always the things that I'm looking for. Because a lot of the stuff that's being printed right now, you know, will be, uh, you know, rubbish. Uh, but I think it's the how you take a look at these monumental changes, both in the uh, geopolitical unrest and, you know, technology and the economy. I think there's some good principles that are going to get us through any change, challenge or opportunity. So Matt, you and I have both been in and out of the tech industry for the good part of the last sort of 20 years at least. Um, and you've been at Cisco, Adobe, and now Microsoft. I was at Oracle for a while, and uh, I, you know, I'm in and out of, of various sort of startup companies that, that are involved with a bunch of different technologies. What strikes me, though, in this journey, and I'm curious what you uh, think, is that so one thing is, you know, what we're talking about here a little bit, you know, the perceptions of a company like a Microsoft and how that really, in, in Microsoft's case, has, has changed quite a bit. I'm sure if you were on the inside from the early days, you, you never thought that it was an evil empire because right. then you wouldn't be working for them, right? And, and you, you know, but, but what I'm thinking is, it both changes with the company, but also it depends on the, the, the products. And, and each company, you know, the company itself might change, but the, the, the role that even the same product has in a different decade is also very different. So it depends, you know, are you the monopolist? Are you not? Are you the innovator? Are you actually the, you know, are you the incumbent? Um, how do you reflect on that? I mean, you joined Microsoft just recently, so this isn't your history but but right. you have to live with it right you, when you are telling the story of the company you work for now you must be aware that it has a legacy and yeah. not all of it was perceived as fantastic and right. other things you know early on was perceived as obviously enormously innovative they're, yeah. they're kind of the the first startup to speak of you know in in yeah. this world yeah i so again i've been here two and a half years which you know relative to some of my peers is you know, 10% of their career or even, or, or even less for some of them. Um, I took a lot away from, from Cisco in terms of where did I learn the most, right? And so trying to figure out, and, and they gave me a lot of opportunities to go try different things, you know, be the guinea pig, even though you're a 70,000 person company, you know, I, I would work for John and he would send me on little things that turned out to be big things. And so I think that's where I, I get a little bit of my risk taking uh, appetite and, you know, join a company out of Tel Aviv after that, taking that sort of approach. So the reason I go back to go forward is it wasn't obvious to me that Microsoft was the choice. And candidly, um, I was managing the Microsoft and Adobe uh, portion of that partnership. And I got to know, I enjoyed Adobe, but I got to know the people at Microsoft who now I kind of call my family, right? And change is inevitable and, and you know, tomorrow's never guaranteed. But I really enjoyed working with the people and they were customers and so when there was an opportunity to do something different, 
which wasn't super clear at first, but doing something and leading the industry for high tech, and that's you know software platforms, um, digital natives, uh, you know startup with private equity and venture capital. That was something that was super interested that I was super interested in. You know, some of the the competitors out there I thought were on were doing some cooler things and didn't have the history to to, to a certain extent. Um, so I sort of shared that perception, Tron, that you had. But they were doing enough cool things, and I believed in the leadership, and I and that's what made me comfortable. And I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. And these are the type of leaders that would allow me to do that, and not you know, as you call it, you know, have a straight job and. You know, here are the three things that you do, and you have to do that in a large organization, both large and small, and everything in between, along with our partners and customers. But they gave me just the perfect amount of latitude to to grow in an area that candidly I wasn't, you know, very good at. And to be honest, I had a little self doubt when I started. You're like, where do we start? You know, and now we've got a thousand person internal community. We're building on that momentum. We're we're shaping our partner organization, and you know, the feedback's been really good, and we're really helping the the customers and the partners. Um, help each other and, along with our account teams. So it's it's been great. But the history was something that I thought about and I said, you know, is this going to go backwards? Can they go forward? But I think Satya's done a great job. Um, and I've learned a lot that I took for granted along the way when you think about, um, you know, maybe growth is great, but you want to grow at a healthy rate. We did, you know, they didn't decide to go into certain markets that are, you know, under scrutiny, um, be it Section 230. Uh, in terms of platforms, um, they kind of stayed out of that. Now, before I went there, I would say, well, we should try all these different things, right? We should try all these new technologies. We should get in. And I think there was a better sense of judgment from our executive leadership that said, either that's a domain they don't want to go into, or it's not ready. It, you know, and you could argue sometimes you're early to market with the right product, and sometimes you're late. And I know we've had those conversations as well, Tron, but um, I'm thoroughly in, enjoying the, my career thus far. So if you look at the tech industry, so you, you're responsible for the tech industry. I mean, it has changed a lot because tech yeah. used to be a very separate sector, but it seems to me that nowadays, whatever tech company you are, the vertical that you're operating in, whether you are in one or in five or in like Microsoft, you have many verticals, but you have to pick them carefully even at that size because the software is so embedded in whatever thing you're trying to do, it's not right. just enough to have this fantastic technology like it perhaps was way back when, you know? Uh, so you have to have a platform that's customized enough right. to the industry-specific problem you're trying to solve. Right. Um, is that one of the lessons that you think that Microsoft learned uh, apart from this value of generally, you know, working in an open ecosystem, which I would say was a lesson that took a while for Microsoft to learn, to be yeah. very honest, right? Yeah. Uh, but when it learned, it learned deeply. Yeah. So it's just interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there was an article, it's funny you brought that up. Um, there was an article that came out, I want to say it was, and I, and I did an all points bold into the, to the community. It said this was, you know, we are not embracing open source in our in our app store. And I won't go down a, a product red hole, but that was probably could have been better worded. We actually are. Um, but the way it was worded, it was like, oh, we're gonna go back. And so to your point, people just sort of jumped on it. It was kind of like um, you know, dog piling on the thing, going, Oh, they're gonna go back to their old ways when that wasn't the case, really what it was around. It was copycat, you know, use cases, application for DevOps, GitHub, um, NLP copilot. And, and we were trying to get rid of the bad actors, right? And you see that yep. a lot. You see in other app stores, they may be a little bit more lenient on that, um, some not so. But uh, that was, it was funny because that kind of came out in context just a couple of days ago. We had to course correct the, 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 uh, the talk track on that. So, I, I mean, it, it's more interesting to talk about the future than the past, but let, let's just dwell on the past for, for, for one moment. Sure. I mean, there are many, many spaces where any company has to sort of like decide, are we going to play here and how seriously are we going to play? If you'll just look at uh, w one thing, which kind of is a thread through m many of the companies you've worked for. So what now is called, uh, I guess, uh, you know, remote calls and stuff that we're uh, currently doing, which... Yeah. Everyone suddenly started doing during the pandemic. Uh, at Cisco, you had two different products. There was the very advanced telepresence product, and then mm -hmm. WebEx, of course, which uh, Cisco bought. Mm -hmm. um, that whole problem of communicating either just one-to-one 
with some sort of, some amount of digital support or literally yeah. conferencing in several people. That's an enormous market that was up for grabs. For me, it's almost it's really surprising actually that well Cisco saw that early on, but arguably you know it took a while for it to and 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 now we know that it hadn't yeah. actually saturated the the market. There was much more to, right. to go on. Yeah. Why uh, why do companies that are in a market not why are they not always able to capture the full opportunity? Why did it take a pandemic and a Zoom and you know players like that to yeah. fully capture an opportunity that was so readily there? With yeah. a company like Cisco and for, before that, Tanberg and others yeah. that really had the technology and the product. That that was yeah. never the real issue. Yeah, it, it's a good question. And then you give two great examples. So at Cisco, there was WebEx, you know, <clears> or <throat> Skype with with, with Microsoft. Um, and I would say that you know we were trying to figure out how to optimize presence, productivity, and and meetings. And so I think. You know, walking a mile in those shoes and saying, "Well, why didn't we? Why did it take a pandemic to, you know, to really evangelize, um, you know, these video collaboration platforms?" Look, sometimes big companies don't get it right. Sometimes small companies don't get it right. Sometimes you take things for granted. And I know that you also have, as you were talking about industry clouds, you've got different industries. You've got your remote worker industry. You've got, you know, field service. You've got people who have to actually physically leave the house. And I think. Part of evangelizing that was like we wanted to evangelize it, but not at the point of diminishing returns where it disrupts the real estate investment trust and commercial real estate. And I'm not purporting that these are the official statements from, from Cisco, but as I go back and I think through that, we were, you know, we were a pioneer in terms of bringing that virtual experience, remote work into our portfolio because we were trying to constantly differentiate ourselves between routing and switching, right? First routing, then routing and switching. And we got into the Wi-Fi market. We had to do some really crazy things to get that going. So I think, I think um, that is the portion of the software company that, and among others, for where Cisco is today. For Microsoft, I think there were a lot of companies that were just confused. Like I remember my first day. We didn't talk about this time. My first day at Microsoft was day one of the pandemic, right around that time. It was March thirteenth, twenty twenty, and I went went into the Irvine office, and they said. Welcome to Microsoft. Here's your laptop. Now go home. So that you know, brute force, and it, no, there was there was empathy there, but it was like we don't know what's going on. I called my manager. And I said, "How long is this going to last?" I'm like I don't know, maybe three to six weeks, and here we are. So I just think some things are hard to predict, but that's where I go back to. And sometimes what I do is I, I recommend Tron that we should be doing certain things, you know, outside of our comfort zone. So I mm -hmm. just really don't have all the answers, but I'm a good. Um, funnel you know from a customer standpoint that just because we didn't do something doesn't mean we're not going to do it in the future and you start to touch on one of the the topics that we we'll probably dig into the metaverse we really have to figure out you know because 2d to 3d we need to figure out what use cases are going to be here today some aren't going to be here for three to five and maybe never be here so now more than ever with remote being sort of the new de facto for most of us that you know can afford to do so meaning not you know pay wise but you have the luxury. It's a luxury to work from home. Um, we're going to see those worlds, you know, start to merge, and we've got to be really careful about the use cases that we bring. And to your point, three to five years from now, we should be looking back to say, you know, we saw all the, we saw all, we were coming out of a pandemic. It was the perfect time to do this. It integrates with all of our solutions. Let's get three steps ahead of the competition and serve our customers. Well, and I think that's a great point, Matt, because you know, even if. Uh, the the easy take on this story is to say, hey, Microsoft and Cisco, they all lost and Zoom, the young startup, you know, understood everything. Mm -hmm. But I'm not so sure three to five years from now that you can that, you know, if you're looking back, you can claim that one company is going to be this massive winner or, or even the winner of the metaverse, because these things change. And what uh, what you and I have been growing up with, like, 15, 20 years, probably of like remote workers, at least yeah. for me, I've been a remote worker for decades, right? So yeah. this wasn't new to me that, however, everything changed when everyone else became remote because that changed, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the variables, right? But I would say the technologies, you know, they haven't really impressed me immensely. Like I'm still waiting for whatever it is. And we'll talk about the metaverse. Yeah. Like I am still not enormously comfortable 
uh, or or feel that this is it. Like there has to be more. If you know what I'm yeah. saying. I mean, yeah. this is all great. We're talking to each other. We can see yeah. each other, but there's there's a certain amount of lag. There's all kinds of issues that certainly make it very different. No. So the next stage, whatever that next stage is, to get that right will we'll take perhaps a different set of competencies than what got us there. So right. I'm just curious, you know, given that, if we're moving a little bit more towards futuristic things, what do you think it is that it's going to take to bring about the metaverse? Because Microsoft clearly, uh, with a few other companies, have been really, I don't know, pushing, but certainly there. Right, we're like yeah. we're ready. We're going to be there. We're going to shape this, whatever this is. Yeah. What is it going to take to bring about the metaverse? And maybe you can also define the way you see it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you go, if you sort of, a lot of people combine them with Web three, and so mm -hmm. if you think about Web one, it's read only. So if you think about as an example, it would be um, uh, maybe not a perfect example like Wikipedia. Right. So in Wikipedia, you read this is, you know, everything about this person, crowdsource funding. And then Web 2 is read, write. So now I can read and write into it. And that's sort of social media. Right. And that's sort of taken off in, in a lot of different areas, um, some good and some not good. Right. And so to your to your um, follow up question to, to the, the metaverse is I also think that this is a very effective way for getting um, seeking information that you want. Um, that social audio is, is huge. And on this, you can actually listen to it while you're running. You can watch it if you choose. So you've got the best of both worlds. And I think social audio, you know, and that's the different, and I won't name the names. I think we know them. There's, you know, Twitter space, Clubhouse, all that. I think those are fantastic platforms for um, getting us all to ingest and seek out the content that interests us either for work or home. So where does this all go to? Well, if you sort of predict on where these platforms will go, there'll probably most likely be a lot of platform disruption. And there's going to be, you know, whether it's chatbots, you know, and how advertisers spend and where they get their return on investment, you know, post audit. And this is not just Twitter. This is like the whole system. It's, it's systemic. And I think 60 Minutes covered it a couple of years ago in terms of the prevalence of click farms. Yet we had the information, Tron, right? We knew. But what happened the next day? Like, did anybody follow up in IT? or say, we, we, we want to audit this. And maybe the problem was too big. So getting to Microsoft, I, I generally feel, and we are learning, and we're learning from our customers, that in this Web3 um, environment, there's been a lot of discussion, say, if you want to be on the leading edge, you need to build in 3D versus 2D. And um, this experience, Tron, would change over a period of time. Um, as an example, and this is not a pitch, this is just public information, what we announced to build, is that we'll see a lot more immersive experiences and productivity enhancements coming through teams, right? So you'll start to see, and you know, we've talked about potentially gamifying this. Um, I don't know if you want to like do a wordle right now, and that if that makes us any closer. But you know, a lot of people, my wife, my wife likes it. So, and, and it'll all be personalized. So for the metaverse, I think we're, we're hearing a lot of Hololens, and it's got to be a headset. There's a debate on if it needs to be a headset. Or not? Are you in you know product industrial use cases, digital twins? I think the first the first big use case, and it makes sense, right? Is product and training and onboarding. So I think if you just think about the practicality, to say okay, when Tron meets um, you know one of his guests, or when Matt hires somebody as an employee, could we onboard them and train them in a different manner than you know seven days of training? And I'm making that number up. But you could differentiate the company by changing the onboarding experience. Um, so that's training. Um, you see it today in, you know, a call center company is, is, a, is a company that's distributed, you know, U.S. and globally. And you may have, you know, tens of thousands of different agents that you sent home during the pandemic. Well, now you've got to bring those back to a call center, theoretically. But the reality is you're going to have some that are going to come back and some that don't. So now those on, those employees that you theoretically onboarded with, you know, a virtual immersive experience, and they're actually walking around, you know, your executive briefing room versus flying up there, cost savings. Now, once you're in a company, and this is, I'll just make up this company, and you feel like you're isolated from your peers because you're physically distanced. There's some that are on site, some that are, you know, distributed to the field. 
And now you've got a resentment issue from HR because they're they're not collaborating more effectively. And one person thinks the other one's knocking off earlier, whatever. You can you can start to visualize that. And so developing avatars, which I don't think is the end all be all, by the way. It's sort of, it's sort of the crude representation for what we have, what's next, what's available today. Then those avatars can start to see themselves, visualize themselves, you know, looking and hanging out with each other and that proved the, you know, to improve morale. I'll stop there, but I think those are the two kind of use cases that we're not going that we are going to address among others. But I think there's, we also have to make an intentional decision about what we're not going to do because there's certain things like, um, you know, social platforms leading to bullying, gambling, anything that's, um, you know, that, that violates, you know, all the, the nasty stuff, nudity, underage, you know, virtual, you know, strip, like we're not going to do that, right? We're not going to be part of that. I think that's part of your earlier um, comment. What's nice about uh, Microsoft, not that our peers do that at all, but I think they think three steps ahead about what will, what will this technology potentially enable and some good for some bad. And a lot of the technology that we perceived as for good, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago had a, had a decision to make and, you know, some made, you know, the right decision. And they're in good standing with um, with Washington and and um, and others that are not, and they're probably going to pay the the price in terms of lost uh, reach revenue and subscribers if they don't change their business model. But yeah, no, that's that's a big and important issue. But even even before you get to there, though, um, you you were talking about it in terms of use cases, but I I just think of it even even more pragmatically. Like there are situations where I would want immersiveness, like you know, yeah. in in our meeting here. I think generally to get a good interview, I would want to maximize immersiveness to to a point. Absolutely. But there are also everyday meetings at work or with people where I actually want to have more of a cocktail party immersiveness. Like I actually do not, I want to manage the degree of immersiveness because I don't know who I'm going to meet. And maybe I'm meeting someone that I decide very quickly. I don't want to give them more immersiveness, if you know what I mean. So I think you want to know if they're wearing pants or shorts, right? Because the last two and a half years, we've been defined from, you know, chest above. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, both. I mean, sometimes I don't want to know that. You know what I'm saying? It's just so. So I think uh, it's just very interesting what. what a company uh, like a Microsoft now seems to be doing, which is it's not just about developing the technology. It's about really, really understanding the use cases, asking early lead users and also just checking, what, you know, how is our existing software and uh, uh, hardware being used and yeah. then adjusting, you know, uh, on the fly or, you know, and on the go. I guess avatars for me is more of an acquired taste, but uh, I, you know, once they get a little better, perhaps uh, you know, maybe I'll be a convert as well. It's not that I'm skeptical of the concept; it's just that once you have seen too many prototypes for decades, you know, it's like you get a little impatient. I think. Well, it's. Funny. I mean, can you understand that? It's just. Oh, no, absolutely, absolutely, and I, the the psychological study, and it was based on demography, is um, at different different ages is we have Zoom fatigue, right? We have Teams fatigue, we have collaboration fatigue. So, and there was an index that talks about um, your ability to focus when you're always, when you, you feel like you're always being on video. So for this, it's great because we're talking to each other and a lot of people that you either know from your 40 startups that you did, or a lot of people that we don't know, hopefully improving a reach. So this is, I think this is a good medium today, but you know, moving forward, it'd be great if that whole so- social audio category could find, I'm actually writing this down, like a use case that would bring some sort of an element other than just my background and your background and a boom mic to how we would do this. And what does that look like? And I think if it, if that were to happen, and I think it will, it'll probably be, you know, on our team's platform. So this, this is, this is driving another use case that you talk about. Like that's what everything is. It's not the product team saying, this is what you're going to sell. They're saying, give us the use cases. And I think. Some use cases we know, some we don't even know where to start, right? And so the endpoint's an avatar, and you're like, really? Can we do better than that? And I think we can. I do. I really think we can. And you know what? Yeah, just to take a very dumb example, but, you know, I used the segue of having figured out that you were a musician to very, very briefly talk a little bit about music. But what what if 
and I almost have this set up. I would have to like fiddle around a little bit, but you know, I, I have a guitar back there and I could put it on the other channel and I think I could make it sound decent, although not on every platform is it actually possible right, right. now to do uh, high-end audio from two channels because they will, you know, Zoom, for example, for at least without really fiddling around, they yeah. will block out one or the other. I actually tried with my colleagues last year to do some sort of song, you know, and uh, the moment I started saying something, obviously all the audio from the others cut out because that, you know, was default. So you have to fiddle. I mean, that's a dumb use case, but, <clears throat> and you can't know. So, you know, e even just the musician use case for non-musicians, you know, we were talking about one thing and then we're suddenly talking about music and then you want to show me something. Something as simple as that is actually not that simple yet, unless I... It's, it's not. It's not, and I, I would. By the way, I would love to to play with you one day if you if like. We got to figure that that stitching, and you know, so one doesn't cancel the other out. It's actually yeah. one of the reasons why I haven't started playing more. And I know we're getting a little off topic here, but what we did during the pandemic is um, we had a talent show, so we had people do stand up comedy, you know, comedy. So changing not the ex we are changing the experience, but not the technology. So people yeah. would get together and sing and play, and you know tell a joke or, you know, do opera or something. And it didn't have to be musical, but I think we need to keep doing that. I think we only did that during the pandemic. And I think from an engagement perspective, if we start thinking about that and in, in the music industry specifically, I'll actually double, double click. There are people that are their full-time job trying to figure out what does the music industry and metaverse mean? And will that, will we bring the innovation to the artist before the distribution takes control and tells the artists what they're going to make, right? And so it's kind of flipping the script on what happened with the Apple App Store and Google Play. And I think that's, yeah, that's super interesting. I happen to think, I mean, I have a strong opinion. I think the makers are the solution to many of these sort of like lead markets, right? Because they're they're just going to explore and, and, and develop the use cases much far better than, than a company or even, you know, like, a, you know, generally a business mm -hmm. audience. But yeah, but, but it's difficult. I mean, I, w one little recent experience I had was I was just uh, in, in Norway and uh, my um, kids were playing with their cousins and mm -hmm. some of them were are little and they don't even speak English very well, but they mm -hmm. bonded over Roblox mm -hmm. and they developed, you, you know, this, uh, you know, they were all sitting in a corner playing Roblox together on the same, you know, screen, obviously, you know, you know, interacting with each other. And, and now that they're apart again, you know, in two different continents, they are going to continue this. And it was just interesting to me that that particular platform, which if you looked at it, at you know, in its early days, you'd say, well, you know, what's going on here? This is enormously simplified interaction. How could this even be? Right. But then, of course, you're not a kid. So now you're a kid. And, and, and then, but, but then it still engages teenagers, which is mysterious, yeah. you know, to, to me. Yeah. But the fact that it can engage people across languages, whether they are in a room or or actually perhaps because they knew that they later wouldn't be in the same room and could still have that kind of interaction. It's just it's kind of interesting because it does sort of shatter the use case uh, a, a little bit. And it, I think it foreshadows something about where, where this is going to take us. Well, I think you, you're, the relationship with your kids is really important to, to because I think B2C drives B2B, right? Right. And so you're not going to get a lot of B2B influence on B2C, but you're going to get a lot more B2C influence into B2B. And we saw that back, you know, in the bring your own device to work, right? When we sort of challenged the corporate IT and everybody got an iPad, you know, or a, you know, a different type of device um, back then. And all of a sudden IT had to, um, IT had to accommodate multiple different hardware and operating systems. And I think what we're starting to see is, these, you know, to my point about gaming in the metaverse and having that expression through teams, I think that is a B2C influence type behavior. Um, and those B2C companies are going to have to expand into the enterprise use cases. And I think that's a, that's a keen area where we need to make sure we're listening as a company and working with that. And that is something, candidly, Tron, we didn't do very well six or seven years ago at Microsoft. We took some of those born in the cloud players for granted. And we didn't see the opportunity that was put in front of us. And we didn't think that they were going to get funding. And we, we felt like, you know, the B2B market that we're good, you know, we're, we're Microsoft, we're, we can focus on that. And we left a big, you know, portion of the TAM 
untapped. So we got to make sure that we do analyze and see things in real time. And back to your you know, metaverse discussion, when I was working at Cisco, again, something we were early on, John Chambers was in Bangalore and his you know, number two or three was in uh, San Jose. And they, he walked on stage virtually. One was in San Jose, the other one was in uh, Bangalore or Mumbai. And they walked across this, the stage and met each other. And you could, they were two, they looked like they were in the same place. It was a hologram. You, you had the spatial audio. So we had that experience, you know, at least 13 years ago. Problem? Cost about a million bucks to generate, right? So we need to bring the cost curve down. But I think those type of engagements were, you know, we could be looking at you and then all of a sudden some, you know, the evangelist for the music industry, and we want to talk about that. We can beam in, you know, Tony Parisi or uh, Journey or, you know, I'm dating myself. That's where I spent the weekend, Journey cover band. But, um, but you know, we can change that experience. I think it's up to us to sort of listen and make sure that big tech companies are listening. Yeah. So yeah. where's all this going? Future outlook, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I mean, in tech, it's very hard to predict. But, you know, right now we're talking uh, about an improved office productivity. And we were talking briefly about kids play and interactivity yeah. there. Are those going to be the use cases we're going to be maximizing over the next 10, 15 years? Or are we looking at vastly different things that these social immersive technologies are going to be able to do? I mean, I, I have people on this show who are, you know, creating headsets that are used in a space station and all that stuff but is it going to be pretty domestic use cases still or or are the use cases going to explode into completely new realms what, what do you think well i'd start with the big picture first which has nothing to do with technology it doesn't it doesn't so we, we we're in the middle of you know a crisis both from a health perspective and back to the signal to noise ratio making sure that we're in tune and and developing the technology not too fast. And we understand how this is gonna affect our short, medium and long-term health with you know long COVID symptoms. So I think we need to figure out, you know, get things under control there. From a geopolitical perspective, we have, you know, we're glad to be partnering with one of the companies that does a lot of the orchestration and data AI to you know to analyze the geopolitical unrest because you got text, you got deep fakes, you got videos, you got emails, you got chat, and are globally, we don't understand how to produce that. We, we do, but we have to get a single source of truth in terms of what's happening. The whole supply chain could be upended if, if something happens in Taiwan, right? And the chips are just, it's like a pig in the python, right? It just affects everything. Then we go back into recession, which, you know, people are hinting at. So recessions are typically, you know, they there can be, at least the last two that we, we've experienced, can be, you know, anywhere between eight and 10 year cycle. So there's your first uh, issue if we don't course correct. So I think we need to make sure that um, we will be entering um, some challenges to overall peace that we've had uh, as a global entity uh, for a long time. And I think um, there's a, some extreme views and we need a lot more diplomacy to settle that so we can continue to innovate. Um, you know, with earnings, you know, with uh, inflation running high, you can tell over the next probably two, three, four, maybe six quarters that earnings are going to be compressed and guidance is going to be limited. So what does that do to the labor force? Well, it just means everything is going to be right size for a period of time. Right? We've been through this a couple of times, a couple times in our life, Tony, um, sorry, um, Tron. And I was thinking of um, Tony Parisi as I was bringing a data point. But I think we're, we're, we're going to be challenged. Our peacetime is going to be challenged, but I think we're going to be stronger as a result of it. So let's go into the tech. What is, I, I do believe remote workers are here to stay. I really do. I think they're gonna, we're gonna figure out what cities look like, you know, what commercial real estate um, can be converted to first time home buyers, right? Which is a challenge in certain parts of the world, certainly here in Southern California and in the state of California, where it was interest rates go higher. Will they adopt technology for smart spaces and smart destinations to make housing affordable? And I think that's a unique opportunity with the real estate industry. And there was actually a, an article that was written, I think yesterday, about um, what they're doing in Pittsburgh. So sometimes it's not going to be the big cities or the big tech companies leading the ideas. It's some of the smaller tech companies or, or excuse me, smaller cities or cities that want to attract 
new people because their population growth is on the, on the decline. So I always go back to the demography, the birth rate. There's no one answer, but I think I think we're we're set up for um, leading the way in terms of technology. But as one of the CEOs that I that I consider a friend and an advisor, we have to really differentiate between generative use cases and non-generative use cases. So I think the more we focus our effort on what makes life better, what makes the experience better, and what helps us, you know, drive productivity. They don't make any more time, as we know, as we watch our kids grow and, you know, see our parents age and in some cases, you know, pass, which hit me, uh, my father, and my uncle uh, pretty hard over the last two, yeah, about two years ago. And my, my uncle more recently, both my, uh, both were my best men at my wedding. And so their passing makes me think a lot about how we, how do we focus on generative use cases and not just chase that shiny ball. And that's not just over the last two years. I think I've evolved as a person and hopefully a leader for tech for good. So I, I, I challenge our competitors out there and our customers and our partners to innovate with us and just think about what can, what's the long, play the long game, right? There's a lot of short-term things we can do, but just because you can do doesn't mean you should. Think about how we can play the long game. And I think we'll be more unified as a country. And then hopefully this geopolitical unrest will settle with minimal amounts of you know, loss of life and, you know, just unpleasant things for our friends around the globe. And I, I do have the opportunity to sit on a, uh, another, you know, um, group online and we, we've got people globally, um, that are passionate about tech, that are professionals in their industry. Um, we talk often. And so there's a lot that's not coming through, uh, that tells the story and it, and it talks about what they need in tech and what's good for, Thailand is maybe not so good for Africa and what's good for India is not so good for Germany. So this whole tech discussion that I love having with you, Tron, it's a different, it, the spirit of it is the same globally, but the needs are a little bit different. And I think there's certain things that we take for granted that they, that we take for granted that they have the benefit or don't on the flip side. And I think that empathy equation in terms of how do we think about tech, it's not just what happens in Silicon Valley. Austin, New York, Chicago, and you know now Florida, it's much bigger and broader. And I think we need to think about that as we develop and curate a point of view for what is really tech, right? It's a lot more than chips, semiconductors, software platforms, startups, private equity, and and uh, venture capital. It's it's thinking about what improves the world. Matt, to, uh, on that note, my last question is yeah. uh, perhaps not an easy one, but uh, what about what are your thoughts about algorithmic sort of regulation and oversight? So obviously, Microsoft being a big player and, and other tech companies have been mm -hmm. challenged lately just because, and, and algorithms is, you know, maybe just one case in point here, but just to take one element of, of big tech, right? So the idea would be that these algorithms are becoming more and more powerful and even the text creators arguably don't have any idea how they actually operate and certainly haven't disclosed it to even their own employees in some cases and certainly not to the market and certainly not to kids and whoever is using it. Um, wh what is the solution to that, given that you agree with, you know, some amount of that characterization of, of the problem? I mean, is, is the... Is it possible to regulate at algorithmic level and, and disclose algorithms and their full functioning, or will that completely limit innovation? You know, I'm, I'm pretty much of a free market, um, but I do think in, in certain areas, Tron, that um, tech has gone too far, right? And we're just, on, we're just beginning to, to see what those issues are. And so as we, we go back and we talk about Web 1, Web 2, Web 3, um, I don't think there was a whole lot of need for regulation because there wasn't, as you went from one to two to three, um, I should say one to two, there wasn't a lot of perceived risk to your, your source identity, your data privacy, um, and what people know about you, you know, used for, for good or for bad. Like I went on LinkedIn to, you know, realize we still hadn't connected as of yesterday. And I wanted to know a little bit about you and, you know, where you live. And, you know, I know two, two other trans in my family. So we had a little discussion about that. I think that's okay to do, right? That's not stalking. But I think when people, um, you know, target you, and I'm sure you've been targeted and hopefully not your kids, but they get barraged with information overload. And a lot of that spam, a lot of that is, you know, opt out. The cookie list environment, you know, changed marketers 
and depending on which industry, it's either for good or for bad. Um, so I think privacy and trust, we've got to reestablish that. So revert, you know, backing into the question that you asked, I think from a data and AI governance, every company has a challenge, right? My data is over here. It's over here. It's over there. It's over there. I can't make sense of data. So if the customers can't make sense of their own data, yet you have potentially bad actors that are doing things with the data that you can't even organize for your own personal data. I think there's a real, and if we don't get it right, meaning the tech sector, um, we'll get regulated for sure. Yeah. And I, I was actually pondering the, the point a couple months ago, and then all of a sudden, uh, our regional leader, uh, Katie Brown, who runs sales, she was interviewing our CTO, Kevin Scott, and that there is, I think, a big push. So when, when tech kind of, you know, is, becomes a run, runaway train or certain models of tech in the software platform market, um, there's a decision where you're going to grow, you know, grow in a good way or grow and maybe look the other way as you're growing faster. And so I think there's a, I hope it doesn't get to that, Tron, but I think it probably will because even, you know, when we've had, you know, tech leaders at, at you know, up in Washington for Senate hearings, they, they still don't understand what tech does. So I think there's a huge opportunity for DC, um, the SEC, the DOJ to really say, what, what are the implications of this? Because it seems like Washington is often playing catch up with public policy and, you know, the government and we love them because they protect us and they serve, but they also, um, <clears throat> there are many steps to get into the, the federal government with new technology. So we have great technology ideas that we think we can employ for national security, international security, defense and intelligence. Um, and th those companies have great ideas, great intellectual uh, property. They can't get in. So as a result, is the U.S. lagging the rest of the world who brings it in, you know, faster? And in some cases like China, you know, it's a runaway train. And we think that there's probably a sub $10 billion problem in terms of open holes. And that to me is a small number uh, in terms of where we could have uh, data integrity risk. So I do think that regulation is back on the table. There's uh, currently as of this morning, there's five, um, there's five bills in the Congress. And I think that's going to roll up to an omnibus bill. So there's, there's a lot of paperwork that's already, you know, things are, things are in motion in that direction. What it looks like and when, I don't know, but I think, I believe that for us to trust tech again, and I'm throwing everybody in there, right? When there's really only no, but that's a great point, Matt. I mean, that, that that's you know, I think the spirit of this episode too. It wasn't really to make Microsoft, uh, yeah. you know, either hero or villain. It was just to reflect a little bit on a instantiation of one company that, for various periods of time, was perceived as the tech sector, and then perhaps for a while was viewed as largely irrelevant and then now is kind of back in the limelight. Yeah. You know, to a politician that doesn't specialize in, in tech or even in the tech industry, mm -hmm. it's a little bit reductive to view it even that way, right? Because that's kind of the way the consumer views it. You know, do they have cool tech or not? Do I engage yeah. with it or not? Yeah. But it seems to me that what we're trying to do, you and I, you know, me on the podcast and other places and you with your thought leadership is to try to portray that you know, it's not the industry overall that does one thing or the other. And it's not like one company should be allowed even to kind of reflect the entire industry's points of view at any given moment. I think it's it's like, yes, you know, if it's a monopoly in a given industry, that is obviously a problem that policymakers have a solution to and they could choose to act or not. Right. But the challenges we're dealing with, the real challenges in, in tech, they are so much more nuanced, right? There's so many other issues. And yes, uh, you know, there's maybe at any given moment, a, a couple of tech companies that could be conceived as the problem. But as tech is really just part of every bit of society, it's it's not like, it's not really a winner takes all, right? Uh, all across tech, right? It's right. maybe a winner takes all in, in each division. But now you have what, like, 20 different industries where there yeah. probably is a winner, a separate winner. And yeah. it's not really, I guess for me, it's not just about the winner. It's about regulating uh, what we want the technology to be doing. So, so I, right. I'm happy that, you know, we have had a conversation like that. Is there anything uh, as a kind of a last thought that you have, you know, what, what keeps you up at night? What should 
keep people up at night when it comes to thinking about the future of tech? What is it that people should be looking out for, whether they're parents or consumers or, I mean, yeah. sort of like an open-ended question here. What, what is it that you sharpen your teeth with to to try to understand what's happening and, and be aware of the, the biggest, you know, trends or, or developments that you could either be excited or worried about in tech? Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. I, I think for <clears throat> for myself, just using tech to improve productivity. You know, I've got two kids in, in high school. So, you know, what my parents didn't have on me is we, we've got location services, right? So I know generally, you know, I can pinpoint their location and that develops, you know, trust because I, if they say they're going to be there, they know. For my uh, mother, who's still alive, I think about, um, I think, and so I'm going to answer it on a personal level. You know, I want to make sure that she's got a wearable. So if there's a fall risk, you know, living alone, the signal comes to me. Um, all these joys as, as we get older, right? And, you know, the thing that keeps me up is, um, are we going to get it right? You know, do we listen to the customers enough? I feel like there's so much more, there's so many more stories that can make, you know, the next 12 months from now or six months from now, we have a completely new narrative to talk about, right? And right. so I think we just need to really accelerate the use cases and not because Microsoft wants to sell you more things. We just want to find more solutions to problems because people like you, we want to have a more immersive experience. And so the truth is, Tron, we could probably go figure this out by talking to a couple smart engineers and then do a little you know, Zencaster hack. And then all of a sudden it takes off and we're like, why didn't we build that company ourselves? Right. So I think there's great startup ideas and sometimes startup ideas that hide in high tech. So don't, don't count out the, the large players for coming up with some cool use cases because they may have to do it faster than a startup because they have to compete with the startups. So I think there's like a potential misdirect that we think about, but generally speaking, I, I think about just driving the use cases and the experience faster on a personal level. Like I said, I, I think about my friends, my family, their well-being. And then I hope that these social platforms um, make the necessary changes because I do see people react differently. They're emotional. It, it, it changes the, the relationships. I really like to keep um, strong and lasting and loyal relationships. And I hope that misinformation doesn't threaten us geopolitically. Some of those platforms out there right now they're either you know, going to get regu regulated because they don't do anything. They're going to do it or redirect and move into uh, social commerce. And there's plenty of that. Um, and, and that's going to be good for some. And it's going to cause channel conflicts with others. But um, from a core perspective, I think, I think that there's a lot more we can do by listening to our customers. But that's also the, the, where I have the most fun, right? It's talking to people like you and not having a product discussion. Just what do you want to do differently? And the best ideas never relate to a product. The best ideas relate to an experience, and I'm still learning, right? So I haven't figured this out, Tron, but you know, I hope I can come back on your show in six months and said, "Oh, the Matt Hughes of you know back in July and August didn't you know?" But he had a lot, lot to learn. That will be success for me if I bring up a whole new narrative and a whole new uh, set of use cases, and maybe I can take a little homework assignment and do something for for this experience. I don't know, maybe a hologram or something, or we'll skip the avatar, right? Yeah, holograms are good. Yeah, Matt, it's been fascinating. I mean, this is, I, you know, we we share the fascination with emerging tech, but I think we also share the uh, the idea that these things aren't uh, panacea; they need to be measured, and they have consequences sometimes that we cannot yeah. foresee. So it's important to discuss those as well. Thanks a lot. No, great. thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and and I hope we can do it again. I hope your listeners enjoy this. And uh, look forward to work with, working with you in the future. So thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate sure. it. And I learned a lot as well. Great. Well, have a good one. All right. Thanks again, Tron. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with Ostronarne Unheim, futurist and author. If you're interested in Tron's projects or services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store, where you can buy a keynote book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of Tron's books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. The topic of this podcast episode was how tech companies reinvent themselves. In this conversation, we talked about high-tech industry partnerships, open ecosystems, consumer trends, the microverse, and predicting the role of technology in society. 
My takeaway is that tech companies need to reinvent themselves as much as people do. Nothing remains constant. The tricky thing is to combine technological breakthroughs with the kinds of user interfaces that allure consumers and business users. To stay in tune with industry trends is itself challenging, but necessary in order to partner and deliver experiences together, which is the reality of the high-tech industry these days. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, please subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 140, When Will Conversational AI Get Real? Please share this show with those you care about, and finding us on social media is easy because we are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube, and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.